0: Well, it's good to be with you. I am delighted to get to be here in this church I've heard so much about for so many years. And, uh, you know, it's just great to be in a church with a, such a hopeful name like Living Hope. Now, I pastor the Buck Run Baptist Church. Now, it's the manliest church name in the state of Kentucky. Uh, I mean, uh, and it draws a certain crowd when you have a church named Buck Run. I mean, like, we put conceal and carry permits in the new member's package at Buck Run. I, I, I cannot guarantee you that some nut won't walk in one day and shoot me while I'm preaching, but I can guarantee he will not get out alive at Buck Run. I mean, our biggest problem is crossfire. So, uh, we are, my church is, is at the Forks of Elkhorn. Uh, which is, uh, we, we literally are surrounded on three sides by water. So the South Elkhorn flows into the North Elkhorn and, and uh, forms the Elkhorn and flows onto the Kentucky River. And our church has been in that location since 1888, but we are moving. We've bought 100 acres and we're maxed out. We, on Sunday, we crowd somewhere between 600 and 700 people in that place. And, and we use every parking place we have and every bit of space. And uh, and I will also tell you that Highway 460 walk, drive, goes right through the middle of our property. Now, uh, it's in Frankfort, you understand, so this is a perfect church for Frankfort. It's a church on both sides of the road. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's not, it's not hard for me to pastor near a, a creek. I bet some of you know the place I'm going to tell you about. When I was a boy, my dad pastored the Omsted Baptist Church in Logan County. Now, how many of you know Almstead? All right, a few of you know Almstead. And I will tell you, we lived at Lick Skillet on Watermelon Road by Whippoorwill Creek. I'm not making that up. That's, so that, that's, And then we moved to Christian County, and I lived by the Sinkin' Fork Creek. So I, my whole life has been around Creek, so I'm very comfortable at Buck Run. And I'm very comfortable being with you today because I know that you worship and serve the same Lord that I do. What a joy to be here uh, and to be invited by your pastor. I encourage you to turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians. And we're going to take a look uh, at at some passages, uh, uh, some verses from chapters 3 and 4. Well, You know, we've been thinking about hope, and I want to talk to you about the boldness of hope. Paul was writing this letter. I, I think this is probably Paul's Sophisticated composition. You look at all of his Paul's other letters, and they're very well written. But the the structure of Second Corinthians is amazing to me because of the way that he lays it out. Now, there have been scholars, especially liberal scholars, through the years that have looked at 2 Corinthians, and they said, "Oh, there's no way that this is this is one single letter." They question what we call the unity of the letter because they say, "Well, you know, he starts out with his high, lofty prose, and then." He gets progressively angry with them and then he backs it down In chapters 8 and 9 he's talking about taking up a collection and then chapter 10 he's mad all over again and they said there's no way that's one letter. And I say now obviously these liberal scholars have never had children because really uh, most of my conversations with my boys when they were teenagers followed the pattern of 2 uh, Corinthians where I, I started out well enough and the longer I talked to them the like, a little bit angrier I got and really needed to back it down and, uh, and then I remembered what I was mad about to begin with and got upset all over and uh, Paul does that I get it and the reason is he, he has given his life to these people he planted that church he spent 18 months risking his life in Corinth in order to take them the gospel. But now he's gone. And they're like his problem child. They they just keep straying away. I mean we know that Second Corinthians is actually at least the fourth letter Paul has written. We have the, the two that the Holy Spirit inspired and included in our Bible and our canon, but there are, are two others that are mentioned in these two letters that we know he wrote. So he wrote at least four letters to them, and every one of them was correcting their departure from the Gospel. And now the latest wrinkle is that these these very sophisticated, very well-spoken, very highly educated teachers have come into Corinth and have seduced them. And what they say sounds really good. And the reason it sounds really good if they say it well and it sounds close to the Gospel. But anything that's close to the Gospel is not the Gospel. And this is, this is what takes Paul off. That he taught them. And he takes it very personally that the people that he led to Christ, the people whom he discipled, have now taken the message of the Gospel and they, they've altered it they've taken some elements out, they've added some elements to it because they've been so impressed with these false teachers. And so Paul writes Second Corinthians to remind them of the gospel, to remind them of the ministry. They don't like certain objectionable, controversial elements of the gospel. And Paul's telling them, you cannot take out the offense of the gospel. And part of, I think, the seduction of these other teachers is they're taking them back to the law. They're saying, well, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but you need to believe, have faith in Jesus, and then there are certain things you need to do, as though those things that you do somehow add to your salvation. They, they somehow make you a little more favored by God, and again, of course... Any kind of legalism, whatever its form, anything that says that our human effort is the basis of God's favor of us is contrary to the gospel. So Paul writes, and I'm going to begin reading verse 7, but we're really going to pick up our, our study down to verse 12. But I just want you to notice as we begin reading in chapter 3, verse 7, how many times he uses the word glory. And what he's doing is he's contrasting the glory of the Old Testament, the glory of the Old Covenant, the law, if you will, that God gave to Moses with the glory of the new covenant, the glory of God that's revealed in Jesus Christ. So in verse 7, he says, Now, if the ministry of death, that's, that's the law, the ministry of death, the law says, if you break this, you die. The ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who had put a, a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all... "...with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. But we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We've refused to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word." for Jesus' sake, for God who said, "Let light shine out of darkness," has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, we're in a moment in the history of of Christianity in the United States where we're not sure where everything's going. Now, here's the truth: we never were. We sort of thought we were, but we never were. You, you can't be sure of the future. You can't know anything other than what the, the Word reveals. But, you know, I'm listening to a lot of Christians in the last couple of weeks. And it's as though, you know, heaven itself has just closed its doors and is not taking any new applications. Well, I want you to know that we have a great hope this is exactly what Paul is getting at. He says we can be bold. He talks about because of this hope, we have boldness. And and I think there, in this text we read, there are like three primary reasons why we can be bold. The first one is we can be bold because we, we have not lost hope. In verse 12, he says, we have such a hope, we're very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome. Now, look what he says. I I want you to understand something. He's comparing and contrasting the old covenant with the new. He's saying to Christians, why on earth would you ever want to go back under the law? Isn't that an astounding thing? I, I was in a doctor's office one day and these two ladies were having this discussion. And they were having a big theological debate. And the theological debate was, whether or not a Christian could eat catfish. And one of them said, Well, I'm all I know is the Bible says you ain't supposed to eat no fish while it ain't got no scales. And the other one said, No, no, I don't I think when Jesus died it allowed us to eat cat. he allowed us to eat catfish. And they were going back and forth. Neither one of them had any reason, they did not know why. We might not be able to eat catfish, or how the death of Jesus was connected to whether or not we can eat catfish. But they knew it was somehow connected in there somewhere. Well, certainly we need to know. We need to understand this because you're hearing this a lot in this current debate about gay marriage. One of the things they do is they'll pick out Old Testament verses. Well, do do you eat? uh, Do you eat catfish? Do do you wear wool and linen mixed? Do you go by those laws? And we need to understand that that old covenant had a purpose and that purpose was to point us to God's standard of holiness to show us our need of Christ. And he said, Paul is saying that that had a glory. There was a glory to it. But it does not compare to the glory that we have in the new covenant. Well, you and I have a covenant of of the Spirit, not of death. We have a, a, a ministry of righteousness, not of condemnation. We have an unfading hope, not a hope that fades. We have freedom, not the bondage of the law. We have transformation, not merely reformation. And to illustrate this, Paul uses a a scene from the life of Moses. You Remember, Moses went up on Mount Sinai. What an incredible scene that is. The intimacy of it. That there on Sinai, God gives him the law Moses communes with God. Remember later when God gets angry with Miriam and and Aaron because they think that they're as important as Moses. And God sort of dresses them down. He says, listen, I might speak to a prophet in dreams and visions, but when I speak to my servant Moses, I speak to him face to face as a man speaks with his friend." Wow. That's quite... That's quite a statement that God makes about Moses, isn't it? Moses there on Sinai, he spent 40 days with God, and, and in this moment of intimacy, he has one request of God. He says, show me your glory. And I'm going to paraphrase some things. Let me just get right to the theology of it, if, you, if you'll allow me that privilege. God's to answer to him is, Moses, if I showed you my glory, it would kill you. No man can see my glory and live. Nevertheless, God said, I'm going to hide you back in the cleft of a rock, and I'm going to cause my goodness to pass before you. Notice the way God equates glory and goodness. I'm going to cause my goodness to pass before you. And he says, and then he shows, he says something that's very curious. He says, I'm going to show you my hinder part. Now, that's a strange thing for God to say. I'm going to show you my hinder parts. And that means exactly what you think it means. I had this driven home to me once when I was in Israel, and my Jewish friend and guide, we went into a Palestinian restaurant, and he didn't like the Palestinian flag, and he sat with his back to it. And I said, Z, why are you sitting there? He said, he pointed to the flag, he said, I show it my backside. And he was making a statement. What does it mean when God says He's going to show Moses his backside? What God is saying to Moses is, Moses, I'm going to show you the least glorious part of me. I'm going to show you what equates to your backside. I'm going to show you the least glorious thing I can show you. It's still going to nearly kill you. He has to hide him back in a rock. He causes his goodness to pass before him. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, his face is glowing. glowing and he puts a veil over his face. Now if you ask most Christians who've heard that story, and you say, why did Moses put the veil over his face? The answer you almost always get is so that they could look at him. His face was so bright they couldn't look at him. And so out of, I guess, kindness to them, he put the veil over his face. Paul says that's not it at all. Paul said. Moses knew when he came down from that mountain that the glory on his face was going to fade. He did not want them to see that it was fading. So he put the veil over his face so they would not see the outcome. They would not see the end of that which was being abolished, that which was coming to an end. He didn't want them to see it fading. And from then on, when Moses would go into the tabernacle to meet alone with God... He would take the veil off of his face as he went in there. And then as it came out, you know, he would be like recharging his battery. His face would be shining again. He'd come to the doorway and let them see his face and then he'd put it back on. He never wanted them to see that it was fading. Now, Paul sees in that a picture. This is, this is, this is a, a picture of the way that the glory of the old covenant fades. But you and I, our hope is tied to God's glory. You and I might hear that story of Moses and think, wow, if if only I could be on Sinai, if only I could be with Moses, if I could have an encounter with God like that, man, that would be incredible. Oh, that God would give me an experience like that. But if you say that, you really don't realize what it is you have in Christ. Because the least... Believer in this sanctuary today has something greater than Moses ever had. You have a greater display of the glory of God than Moses ever saw. You have a deeper intimacy with God than Moses could ever know. And you say, "Well, that that seems impossible." My my face doesn't go. Listen to what John said in John chapter one: the Word was with God. Remember that? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God, and then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His what? His glory. What glory? The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, that's God's goodness. You and I have the Son. We have not the pictures that God gave to Moses. We have the reality of Jesus Christ. Moses had to go up on Sinai to meet with God. You and I can meet with him anytime, anyplace, at any moment, as long as we want. We have direct access to him because Jesus Christ, our great high priest, has gone into the most holy places, our forerunner. He's opened up a new and living way for us. I would never trade places with Moses. Moses longed to see what I preach to the dear saints at Buck Run every Sunday. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we can be bold because we we don't lose hope. God's given us such a hope in Christ. And so that we with unveiled face, you see that in verse 18, we all with unveiled face. Beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Moses, his glory was fading. But you know what? You and I are growing in glory. And one of these days, that's going to be consummated when we become like Him because we will see Him as He is. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You know, if, if you're going through... If you're going through your Christian life, always thinking about what not to do. Oh, well, I, I, can't, I can't think about women. Oh, I, I, I can't do this. I can't go there. I, I can't, I can't engage in this activity. You know what? The more you think about what not to do, you know, it's funny. The you'll always move toward whatever you focus on. And what Paul's telling us here is that God has given us an unveiled. Glimpse of Jesus Christ, that we can be with Him, we can behold Him, and if we concentrate on Him, if our Christian walk is about being with Jesus and being like Jesus, not about what we don't do. Although there are plenty of things we don't do, don't misunderstand. I'm, I'm not, I'm not an antinomian. I'm not telling you that oh, nothing is sin for Christians. Quite the contrary. What I'm saying is that the motive for holiness has to be a love of Jesus Christ. That's what gives us our boldness. That's why we don't lose hope. If it's about what I do, I'm in trouble. But if it's about Jesus, I have hope. Not only that, we can be bold because we don't lose heart. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, this ministry of this unfading glory, we don't lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Look, I would lose heart if I did not have a confidence in the Word of God to be used by the Spirit and to change lives. You know, I I don't do anything else. My whole life, I've been trained to study this book, to understand this book. I, I don't do anything else. If, if it were about my performance, if it were about my attainment, my achievement, I'd be in trouble. But you know, because I have this book, I've seen what God does with the preaching of this Word. Man, what a what an heartening, encouraging thing that is. We renounce deceit. He says we... We've renounced these disgraceful, underhanded ways. Oh, man, it grieves me. I go to Brazil a lot. My dad was a missionary in Brazil and sort of second home to me. And they have this prosperity gospel that's just taking over Brazil. And I'll get in a cab and I'll speak to a, a cab driver and I'll ask him about whether or not he's a believer. And he'll say, Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, tell me about your faith. And here's the description Before I knew Jesus, I had nothing. I was a drunk. I was poor. I didn't have anything. Now that I'm a Christian, well, I've got this cab. I have a house. I, I've got such and such. There's not a word of repentance and faith. It's not a word about intimacy with Christ. It's all about what He didn't have and what He has. And this prosperity gospel that tells people, oh, God wants you to be prosperous and give your seed faith offering and it will grow. You know, if you can't preach in a Chinese house church, the same thing you're preaching in a middle-class culture somewhere, then you're not really preaching the Gospel. We don't have to resort to that kind of selective use of the text where we cherry-pick verses to, to appease our own predisposition and to say what we wanted to say. No, we, we renounce deceit. We refuse delusion. We're not going to tamper with God's Word. I have a, an, a, an editorial today in the Frankfurt State Journal uh, about my view of the Bible and why I read the Bible uh, the way that I do. And there's an opposing editorial in there by another very liberal Baptist preacher in the city who uh, believes that Christians can embrace uh, not only same-sex marriage, but many other things. And in the, in the course of several of his articles, he even goes so far as to criticize Jesus In one of his articles, he says, now if Jesus had known then what we know today, He would not have said what He said. Poor Jesus. If only Jesus had my education, He'd have been better off. Does that not strike you as the epitome of arrogance? I mean, frankly, if I sit in judgment of Jesus, I don't need Jesus. But I have news for you. You don't sit in judgment of Jesus. Jesus sits in judgment of you. And the same thing is true of this text. Either I am over the text and judge the text, or the text is over me and judges me. You have to decide what you're going to see it. But you cannot approach the Word of God like a picky eater at a smorgasbord deciding which parts are are palatable to you and which parts you don't like. We renounce deceit. We refuse to tamper with the Word of God. We reveal the truth by an open statement of the truth. I have a hope. I have heart. Because I know that when I preach the Gospel, that the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to change the broken lives of women and men who are in desperate need. We're all broken. We're all so desperately out of out of, uh, uh, of fellowship with God by nature, by choice. We desperately need the Holy Spirit. And when we reveal the truth, when we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Before man, before God, we're handling the Word carefully. and And when we do that, then we also can be bold because we don't lose sight of our help. Verses 3 through 6. He says, Even if our gospel is veiled, he says, To this day, there are some that the veil lies over their heart. They can't see the glory of God because there's this veil over their hearts. And so, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ who's the image of God. What Paul is is telling us is that you and I proclaim the truth, but only God can lift that veil. Only God can change a heart And when we just preach the the truth, it's amazing what God does. One of these days, I'm going to write a, a book on pastoring. I'm going to call it The Accidental Pastor. Because what I've learned is that the majority of the really great stuff that happens at Buck Run happens not because of me or my pastoral staff, but in spite of us. A few years back, the McDonald's in Frankfurt burned down two weeks before Christmas. And Two Sundays before Christmas, one of my deacons comes in my office between services and he said, Pastor, you know, McDonald's burned down. He said, none of those workers are going to have any income at Christmas. You know, they get paid minimum wage as it is. Most of them are Hispanic. He said, you know, they've served us so much. We need to do something for them. I said, well, man, Tim, that's a great idea. But, you know, we've got our Lottie Moon offering coming up. And, and, uh, you know, I hate, I don't want people to cut into their Lottie Moon offering to give to that. And he looked at me and he said, you know, pastor, he said, if you ask people to cut into their own Christmas instead of into their Lottie Moon offering and give to help those workers at McDonald's, they'll do it because you ask. And if you ask, my wife and I will give the first $2,000 to help them. Now, it's terribly inconvenient when your deacons are more spiritual than the pastors. Uh, it's just not a very comfortable thing. But I said, "All right, Tim. Right, Let me see what. Let me think about this. We'll see what we can do. You know, we've got a week to do it." So that week, we decided that the next Sunday morning we we're going to have two offerings: one for Lottie Moon and one for these displaced McDonald's workers. And then Sunday night, instead of our regular services and activities, we we're going to have a a meal. This is a Sunday right before Christmas. We're going to have a banquet for all the McDonald's workers and all their families. And with whatever we collect that morning, we're going to give them Kroger and Walmart card, gift cards, so they can get things for their Christmas. And that Sunday morning, not only do we have a, we had like a sixty thousand dollar offering for Lottie Moon, we had over ten thousand dollars given for those McDonald's workers. And that night, when they came, one of my deacons from Puerto Rico translated, and so some of them were, of course. Native Kentuckians, some of them from Central and South America, and, and we just loved on them and we fed them. We gave them when they left. We gave them. They, they weren't even. They thought the meal was all there was to it, and they were grateful for that. That somebody cared about them. And then we gave them $150 worth of gift cards each, and they were just blown away. Had one old guy had tattoo sleeves and big nasty word written across the back of his neck. He came up and he goes, "You know what?" I probably will never go to church, but if I do, it'll be this one. I'm, I'm good with that. That I, I want to position myself in that guy's mind so that if ever he comes to himself like the prodigal son, he goes, I need to go home. Where do I go? He'll come to Bacchon. Man, I, I found out recently, I didn't even know we had a jail ministry i got a bunch of deacons go to the jail in Franklin County every Thursday night. And they've been leading these guys to Christ and discipling them. I didn't even know about it. All of a sudden, they start bringing them to church or they get out. And man, I'm seeing lives changed and homes healed. This wasn't a program of our church. You know what it is? It's preaching the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and my... My people, they get it too. They, they share the Word of God. And you know, when God lifts a veil, when God lifts a veil, we, we don't lose sight of our health. To some, that remains hidden. We know that behind every proclamation of the Gospel, there is a spiritual battle. That the God of this world has blinded their minds. And the only thing that can lift the veil is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they see His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. We don't point them to the law and tell them that you've got to try harder and you've got to do better because that kills. We point them to Christ who receives you as you are, loves you so much He doesn't leave you like that, draws you to Himself and makes you like Him. That's what we preach. That's what we proclaim. We, we only see God's glory in the face of Christ. We don't preach ourselves. Paul says we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. And ourselves, you're servant for Jesus' sake. This is what we preach. And the church that will serve the community is going to have a greater opportunity to proclaim the Gospel than anyone else. See, Jesus isn't revealed in a mirror. We don't preach ourselves. He's revealed in Scripture. We proclaim Him. And man, when, when we proclaim Him, you talk about hope. You know, the the week after uh, we did that dinner right before Christmas for all the McDonald's workers. On January the 2nd, first day that our paper was published after the New Year, there was an article on the front page about a Hispanic couple that coming out of their apartment on New Year's uh, morning had been accosted by three men who put, uh, this was like 5 o'clock in the morning, she was going to work at a, a McDonald's in another town. And these three men put a a gun in the man's ribs and he looked at his wife and he said in Spanish, call 911. And when he spoke, they shot him. Then they took her and they drove her out in the country where they raped her and took her clothes, left her naked on that January, New Year's morning and she, she had to walk to some farmhouse bang on the door about 6 o'clock in the morning. By then, the police had found her husband and he had been airlifted to the University of Kentucky Hospital where he was in a coma for 10 days. When that appeared in the paper on January 2nd, a lady that's a member of Buck Run read that. It didn't tell the, the name of the couple because of the nature of the crime, but it did tell where he worked and it's told that she worked at McDonald's. And the lady in my church read that and she said, I know them. I met them at that, at the banquet. I, I ate with them and served them. And she drove to Lexington and went to the University of Kentucky Hospital. She got somebody there to violate the HEPA laws and tell her where Selwyn was. She went to his hospital room. Debbie didn't speak a word of Spanish and Mata, the wife, did not speak a word of English. Debbie went in there and got right down in her face and somehow communicated to her, I'm here to take over your life. You don't need to worry about anything. And Debbie just loved them. Selwyn had multiple surgeries. Uh... He was in a coma for 10 days. Mata had no one to care for her. Debbie took her into their home. The very next Sunday, she brought her to church. I watched as About 50 women surrounded her and prayed for her at the front of our sanctuary. And the, 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 the thing that I can't get over is that I saw the grace of God not through a program, not through some plan. It was just the simple Word of God acting in the lives of people who then took that Word and took it to others. And you know, not only did sell and survive, he trusted Christ. Not only did Mata make it through that awful trauma, but today they'll be sitting in the balcony at Buck Run. We have a whole little Hispanic section that's come out of them. Not only did they trust Christ and were baptized, They have evangelized their community. We have live translation of our services now. There's a whole gang of the city. We tried to get them moved down to the main floor. They like the balcony. They set up the balcony every Sunday. We've got like this whole Honduran section uh, at, at Buck Run. Why? Well, because the Word of God worked in the heart of a deacon. And the Word of God worked in the heart of a woman. And the Word of God lifted the veil from broken people in horrible circumstances and show them the glory of Jesus Christ. That's that's my only hope. That's your only hope. If you have never put your faith and trust in Christ, if you're looking at what you can do, trying to be good enough to appease God, go to church enough, do anything, then you've not seen the light of the glory of Christ. But it says when one turns to the Lord, the veil is lifted. Today, if you will simply repent of your sin, repent of your effort to save yourself, turn to Christ alone for eternal life. Simultaneously, God is at work lifting the veil. And letting the light of the gospel shine. Would you bow your head with me? With your head bowed, your eyes closed, I I can't help but wonder if there's someone here today that perhaps has been losing hope and losing heart because you've lost sight of your health. This isn't a moment for us to be afraid. To back down, to be quiet. This is the moment for loving, spirit filled boldness. God has given us His Word. He's promised that that Word will not return void. If you're a believer, don't lose hope, don't lose heart, don't lose sight of your help. It's God who lifts the veil. It's God who shines the light. you be faithful to the Word. But if you've never trusted Christ, today, won't you turn to Him in simple faith, just like a child, believing His Father. Say, Lord, I I know I cannot save myself. Only Christ can save me. Would You... Forgive me of my sins. Become my Lord and Savior even now. Father, I pray that this Word that has the power of the Spirit will be applied to the hearts that are broken and in desperate need even now, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.